All right, we are on part 12 of our Hebrews. We're kind of hanging out here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, to talk about some of these elementary truths. Um, uh, we've kind of touched on the resurrection, but we need to discuss a little bit more about that because it is such a controversial issue, even as I said last week in the days of Jesus. And uh, it can be confusing as far as the timing of the resurrection and you know all those kinds of things. So we do want to just kind of refresh a little bit uh, some of these verses maybe we looked at. I'm going to go through them quickly just to kind of recap a little bit. But uh, here in John 6, verse 39, we see over and over that it's at the last day, the last day, the last trumpet, the last day. That is when the resurrection is supposed to take place. There is a fluid and consistency to the word as you look at this. Just in these verses alone, four times it tells us. So it must be important. You know, and you hear when he says something twice, you pay attention. Well, look at this. Just in these few verses, at the last day, at the last day. We see in John 11, verse 21, uh, you know, he says, I know that you will rise again, or that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, what I do like about this verse is what we see is Martha is talking to Jesus, and, you know, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she's like, yeah, I, I know, at the resurrection, at the last day. But what I like about it is because Martha must have been listening to Jesus because this is what he said on his discourse in the previous slide. And so this is after that. So she had learned from Jesus earlier, and now she's confessing and her belief in what he had stated earlier. Um, now, if he was already with the Lord here with Lazarus, um, he would be drawn back from heaven into mortality. You want to talk about a curse, that would be terrible to be Lazarus. And, you know, be with the Lord and all of a sudden be pulled back to mortality. Um, not to say that's not possible, but if it was me, I'd be like, why, Lord, send me back, please. And maybe, maybe that's what Lazarus did say. I don't know. We don't know. The scriptures are silent on that. But um, I do tend to believe that... Um, uh, our consciousness is with the Lord, and we're going to talk about that. There can be some disagreements on it, but uh, you'll see as we go. Um, here in Second Esdras, again, a, an apocryphal book. Um, like I said, we can quote Josephus. So, you know, other church fathers, we should be able to quote this when it lines up with Scripture. Um, Esdras was quoted by early church fathers, it was in the original King James version of the scriptures as well. And so I do think there is some weight that uh, we can put on this book. The Jews had it. Um, it, it reads a, a lot like Daniel. It's very prophetic, uh, almost like the book of Revelation as well. But it lines up with the word as well. And I think that's most important of all. So what we read is this. Second Esdras, chapter 6, verse 7. I answered, what separates the times? When is the end of the first and the beginning of that which follows? Well, Matthew 24, 3 is basically, we get the same question that the disciples ask. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came and privately asked him, 
tell us what will these when will these things be what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age so the disciples are asking the exact same question in Matthew that we see here in second Ezra's being asked the answer in second Ezra's is this from Abram to Abraham or from Abraham to Abraham because Jacob and Esau were born from him but Jacob's hand held Esau's heel from the beginning Esau represents the end of this age Jacob represents the beginning of the age that follows. The beginning of the one man is his hand. The end of the other man is his heel. Don't look for anything else between heel and hand. In other words, the beginning and the end of two different people. So, in essence, what he is saying is this. The Messiah is the one that marks the beginning or connects the beginning of one to the end of the other. Don't look anywhere else. The Messiah is all you need to look at. Um, and this is also why Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob is the age to come. Esau is the current fallen world. We'll talk about that more when we uh, get into chapter 12 of Hebrews. But for now, there's a war between these two ages and um, that's what's being talked about. Just like there was a war between Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac, uh, the law of Sinai and the New Jerusalem from above, those kinds of things. But my point that I want you to see here is when is going to be the end? When, when is that? Well, he says don't look any further than the Messiah. Okay, The Messiah is going to mark the end of the old, the beginning of the new. Now, I don't necessarily mean Old and New Testament as much as I mean the, um, how should I say, maybe the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. John 14, 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So notice that Yeshua is speaking to his disciples here, saying they won't get to Jesus and the place that he prepares until he comes again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So he's coming back to receive us to himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's, at his coming. The timing is clear. At his coming is when the resurrection is going to take place. Colossians 3, 3. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So what we're seeing is there's a consistency with the prophets of the Old Testament. But here we get a new piece of information that when we rise, we'll be singing. Imagine singing with Abraham in perfect harmony. Okay? Together with my dead body they shall rise. Awake and sing. 
you who dwell in the dust. Um, and by the way, I kind of think I know what we're going to be singing uh, if the scriptures are going to give us an indication. Revelation 15 verse 2 says this, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So again, this is at Christ's return, and it tells us we're singing. And not only does it tell us we're singing, but it says it's a song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And by the way, this is also revelation here coming from the Torah and the Old Testament. And uh, we, we can see that uh, the song of Moses way back in Exodus. Um, in Revelation 12, verse 17 as well. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God. By the way, that would be Moses, right? And have the testimony of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. So there's a consistency as before it was coming from the, the Torah and the Lamb, Moses here, again, we, we see the two being connected, the law and the prophets being connected with Jesus, keeping the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, or singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Okay, There's a consistency. In Matthew 24, verse 29, note that this is after the tribulation. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when is all this happening? Well, after the tribulation, and it says, after the sign of the Son of Man appears, there's a loud trumpet from an angel, just consistent with Corinthians and Thessalonians. Isaiah 27, 12 says, It shall come to pass in that day, the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O children of Israel. So it shall be that that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So, again, Old Testament consistent with New Testament because the New Testament didn't give us new information, it explained the old information. This is talking about the Jerusalem above, I believe, as well. Um, but we do see the Mount of Olives being split in two and so on, so perhaps it is kind of a uh, 
one of those intermediate periods, you might say, between the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and just the Lord gathering people to Jerusalem. But anyway, Isaiah agrees, and it's at the great trumpet. The consistency is everywhere. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, we talked about this last week. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Okay, we talked about it last week, so I won't continue. But Revelation 11:15, then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our world and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. So, once more, it's the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. This is all taking place when the kingdom of God comes for him to reign. By the way, Jericho, this is a picture of, you know, Jericho was, was picturing this. You know, Joshua, which, by the way, is the same name as Yeshua, Yahshua, Jesus, is the one leading them into the promised land. And they don't get to enter the promised land until the seventh day when this trumpet blows seven times. Just like we don't go into the promised land till the end of the seventh day or the time of the seventh day, on the seventh day, after seven trumpet blows. In Revelation 7, the bowls, we see there are seven of those, then seven trumpets. Within the seventh of each one of these, there's something that takes place. So, for example, during the seventh seal, we see the first uh, trumpet beginning. During the seventh trumpet, we get the first of the vials beginning. Well, at Jericho, they march one time for six days, and then on the seventh day, they march seven times. So there's a pattern that is here. Like uh, these seals, you have six of them, but on the sixth, or you know, after six seals, on the seventh seal, you have seven trumpets that blow. On the seventh trumpet, you have seven vials that take place. So Jericho is a beautiful picture of what we're reading here in Revelation as well. So there are seven within the seventh of whatever it might be. Um, notice as well, though, that it says not only is the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of God, but now is the time for the dead to be judged and rewarded. Okay, those who have done evil will be judged to eternal damnation. Those who are righteous will be rewarded when they are judged. Uh, because there's no sins to judge, only their works to reward them accordingly. In Luke 14, verse 13, it says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid. When? at the resurrection of the just. Just like what we read there in Revelation. In Matthew 16, 27, more consistency. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then, 
he will reward each according to his works. And this is what I mean, guys, is you might say, well, I'm saved because I believe in Jesus. Yeah, that's wonderful. But there are rewards for what you do, the good that you do, your fruit that is produced. Revelation 22, verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is not before me, with me, to give everyone according to his work. So now is the time for you to start storing up, okay, to, to chase after God. Now, if you're just trying to store up out of selfish greed and whatnot, that's, you're not storing up anything outside of wrath, okay? But uh, I think I've talked about that enough for you to understand what I mean. Daniel 12, verse 13 says, But you go your way till the end, for, the, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance. When do you arise? At the end of the days. 2 Timothy 4, 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, so over and over, we're seeing this consistency, and we could look at more. But I think you get the point that Scripture is not wavering on this. It's not um, some abstract truth. It is very clear, it is very obvious that we do not rise until he comes back. Well, we also have the festival of Rosh Hashanah, which basically means, Rosh is like the word head. Hashanah, ha is the, Shana is year, so head of the year. It's also called Yom Teruah, Day of Trumpets, or the Feast of Trumpets, it's called it sometimes. It happens on the first day of the seventh month of the year. They Jews also call this day the Day of the Resurrection of the Dead. Not an accident that this is taking place at the Feast of Trumpets. It's called the Day of the King, Yom HaMelech, when the king is coronated and the gates of heaven are to be opened for the king to come in. So again, even the festival points to that. We could really look at this in great detail to find even more details, but just wanted to point out that the festival also points that the Feast of Trumpets is when the resurrection and our king comes back at the same time. That's what's supposed to happen, right? The Lord comes back, then we're rewarded. Then the resurrection takes place. In Matthew 23, verse 39, he says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, when the king was coronated, the king would enter Jerusalem. And it is when Jesus is entering Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21 that this is what they are saying. Okay, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's telling them, For I say to you, you're not going to see me anymore until you say this again, until the next time I come riding into Jerusalem to be coronated at the Feast of Trumpets. All right? Um, we also see here that this day is called the Day of Hiding. That is also significant. Okay, because hiding is also connected with the resurrection, especially for the ungodly. 
Let's look at Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood, and will no more cover her slain. You see, hiding is connected with judgment. First of all, the godly are to hide, to just kind of remove themselves from the wrath of God while that takes place. And then the, the wicked are going to hide to try and hide from the Lamb, from the wrath of God, but they can't. Revelation talks about that, hiding in the caves. Psalm 27 verse 5 says, for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. So when judgment day comes, the Lord is going to hide us from his wrath. We are protected from his wrath. Now that doesn't mean there won't be any persecution. Okay, The persecution of the Christians is not God's wrath. All right, But it's not an accident here that this is in the place of his tabernacle, and this is all taking place at the Feast of Trumpets when we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles as well at that time period. Um, in addition to this verse, we see Zephaniah 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So, again, the Lord hides us on the day of wrath. Why? Because those who are righteous, those who seek him, they are his children and he protects them. Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. You see, even the day itself is hidden. And that's why we are told to watch and pray. Now, by the way, Jesus is God, and he says this before his ascension, before he's glorified. When he's asked again after his, he's glorified, he doesn't claim that he doesn't know. So I believe that Jesus knows, but at that time, this is a picture, a prophetic picture, that we are all to watch and pray because the day is hidden. Okay, this day is also called the uh, Day of Remembrance. Okay, Yom uh, Hashanah, or... Uh, Yom Teruah. It's the day of remembrance. Why? Well, because we are to remember. Numbers 10, verse 9. Not only are we to remember this day, but God remembers us. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, <clears throat> then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. So, when we go to war, the trumpets sound, okay, and then you are remembered and saved. Sounds exactly like what's supposed to take place, what we read about in Revelation and this feast. It's also called the Day of Judgment, or Yom Hadin, okay? Matthew 12, verse 40, we'll talk about this. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Remember, the people of Nineveh were 700 years before this generation. Sheba was 900 years earlier. And, you know, we even see the disciples are said that they will be sitting on 12 thrones judging. We see it in Revelation. And so there's no accident that this day of judgment, this Yom Teruah, the head of the year, the Feast of Trumpets, when the Lord comes back, when he will reward the saints and judge the ungodly, is called the day of judgment. Okay? Jesus even said, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, we're going to look at some of the objections to the resurrection. Um, I'm going to kind of explain further as we go. But at this point, we can see the scriptures are very clear that we do not rise until the Lord comes back. That can be disappointing for some. Um, as we go through some of these objections, I think you're going to feel a little better. But just, So just hang in there. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6 says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So right now, in my body, I'm absent from the Lord. Yes, the Lord lives in me, all of that, but he's talking about a different realm here. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So here it sounds like when you die, you go right to be present with the Lord. But we have to take this in context of all the rest of Scripture, don't we? Okay, because it seemed to be saying you're not with the Lord until he returns. So what do we do with this then? Well, first we look at the context and its historical basis, okay? Um, I do believe that in some senses, as we talked last week, that we are with the Lord. Um, I can't prove this, but this is just my opinion, my belief, that when we die, you know, Jesus, as we saw last week, he kept talking about it being asleep. You're sleeping, you're sleeping. When I'm sleeping, it's similar to death, that my body is at rest. It, it's uh, unaware of anything going on around it. But my soul, my spirit, it is conscious of things. I'm dreaming. Okay, but rather than dreaming things that are not reality, your spirit will be in reality with the Lord. And so I personally feel that as we die, our spirits go to be with the Lord, but this uniting to be with him, it's only in part that there's going to be a grander, greater, more intimate relationship with God when our souls are united back with our bodies. Okay, so that's one of the ways that I look at this, that yes, I'm home at the body, I'm away from God, 
But if I can be absent from this body, I will be present with the Lord. Just not as I will be in a greater way once he returns. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18 says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So what I'm seeing now in the body and whatnot, this is a temporary thing. It isn't the end of the story. It goes on in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What is the house not made with hands? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit that indwells this tent. And that's how I see this, that um, it is eternal in heaven that our spirit is with God at all times in some way. Ephesians says that I am now seated with God, who's seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. I don't understand that, but it's what Ephesians says. Somehow my spirit is there in heaven with Jesus right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Last week we looked about Job talking about this change, when his change would come at the resurrection. Verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So in agreement with Job, this change will not take place till the last trumpet when the Lord returns. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this tent, you might say, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So, the then is the final fulfillment of death. There is no more death, and our bodies will no longer be dead. They will be reunited. Death will have no longer any power over even our bodies. So, Paul uh, is referring back to this um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. It, it's almost like 1 Corinthians is a decoding ring for 2 Corinthians. And let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are, or we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So a lot of things there, but I want you to see that mortality may be swallowed up by life. You see, I have life now, but it's not the life that we're going to have when our mortal bodies become immortal. Likewise, when I'm present with the Lord now, if I would die you know, in the, in the next second, I believe I'm with God, but I'm not experiencing it the way I'm going to experience when the Spirit will be reunited with the body in the new heaven and new earth. And also here, he's left us the Spirit as a guarantee, a deposit. That means it's not yet fulfilled. Yes, I have life. Yes, I have the Spirit. But it's only a deposit of a greater purchase that God has made for us. So that's what he's saying. Now we move on in 2 Corinthians 5. Okay, Again, the decoding ring of 1 Corinthians. We see, so we are also confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So now we've gotten more context to this verse. As long as you are in a state of mortality, you are away from the Lord. Okay, therefore, we are pleased to be absent from the body in immortality and present with God after the trumpet blows. So while I do believe that there is an aspect that we are with God, the context of this cannot be used to say that, well, if I die now, I am with God like I'm going to be in heaven. Because clearly the context here is that mortality is being in the state of being away from the Lord in this flesh. So to be absent from the grave is going to be present in the resurrection. But when is when he comes? Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Job 14. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. 2 Corinthians 4, Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Okay? The when is when he comes. The when of the resurrection. Luke 23, verse 39, says another objection here. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, remember, the Bible has got to be consistent. And so uh, one thing that we see uh, to say that, you know, we will be resurrected because he said, today you will be with me in paradise, doesn't fit all the other scriptures that we have looked at. So there are a couple of possibilities here with this verse. Um, let's kind of look at it in context with other things here as well, okay? John 20, verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is saying, Teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. So this is three days after the thief. And Jesus hasn't gone to paradise. He was not with the thief, so something's wrong. Okay, he says, I've not yet ascended, and yet he told the thief, you will be with me in paradise. The only way I can make sense of that, well, there's a couple of ways. One is that the thief is with him in spirit, you know, in a, in a sleeping form, you might say, a dream-like way. Luke 23, verse 39, looking at that again, it says, Surely I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. You need to understand that there are no commas in the original Greek. The only way we can know what this is saying is by context. Uh, the Greek has uh, capitals and lowercase words like English, but no commas. Man put that comma there. So it could be read, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. It is possible to say that, all right, I'm telling you the truth right now, you're going to be with me in paradise. Not necessarily today, but at the resurrection. Because of your confession, because of your faith. All right? Or... It could also be that I tell you the truth that today you will be with me kind of in a dreamlike state, but you're not going to be resurrected. You're going to be away from the Lord uh, in the body, but once your body dies, until it takes on that immortality in the flesh, you will not be present with the Lord fully. So, I know that might sound a little disappointing that when we die, we're not fully with the Lord. But I'll tell you what, being with the Lord in any way, shape, or form is going to be great. And even if it was sleeping until that time, it'll seem like no time has passed at all and you're going to be with the Lord, I think. But like I said, I personally believe that it is kind of, your spirit is there with him. Okay, um, we can also look here that uh, the grammar and whatnot, we've kind of talked about that, so I won't get into it as much as far as, um, you know, where the comma goes. There's just no way to know outside of context of not just this chapter, but all of Scripture. And what we're seeing is that it's the, the time of the resurrection that the resurrection takes place. Luke 23, 39 says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Okay, last time to look at that verse, but I want to connect it with Job 14, 13. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave. Okay, basically you're dead, you're buried. That you would conceal me until your wrath is past. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. And so what we're seeing is that the thief even said, remember me. Just like Job is saying, remember me. And Job is saying it as a time for the resurrection. Okay. Uh, another objection 
to you know basically uh, against soul sleep. Matthew seventeen one, Jesus uh, is being transfigured here on the Mount of Olives, and it says now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them, or him. Now, how can there not be a resurrection if Moses and Elijah are with Jesus? Well, this is definitely an unusual case. But we do say something unique about both of these men, okay? Maybe, okay, maybe they never really died like you and I, and that makes them in an unusual circumstance. Because we know Elijah definitely did not die. Okay, you can go read about that. He's taken up in a fiery chariot, right? But what about Moses? Because Hebrews 9 says it's appointed to man to die once and after that to face judgment. So Moses did die, but yet we still see something very unique taking place here. Deuteronomy 34 verse 5, So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. So first of all, we see God is the one that buried him. We don't see that happening with anybody else. Second, why was it the angel Michael that did it, as we see here in Jude, chapter 1, verse 9? Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Well, it's Michael arguing over the body of Moses. Why? We don't see this about any other person. Could it be that Moses has had a unique resurrection, you might say? Enoch, chapter 20, verse 5. Again, Enoch is a book that um, we've talked about it before, but I, I just feel it's worth mentioning again. Uh, it was in the original King James Bible. The Jews held it in high regard. They did not accept it as canonized scripture, however. Okay, nor do I, but I do think there's value in it. Enoch says this, Michael, one of the holy angels, to wit he that is set over the best part of mankind and over chaos. According to the book of Enoch, Michael is set over the best of mankind. And yet he is the one sent by God to go get Moses, the best of mankind. Therefore, there's something going on here that is unique and special about this circumstance. So to say that Moses and Elijah are resurrected means that we're going to be resurrected early. I don't think holds water. Remember, as well, that Jesus, Yeshua, was to be a prophet like Moses. And Moses was resurrected. This is also a picture of Yeshua. 
okay, that he would resurrect. Another objection to this soul sleep. Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under this altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Well, why are they under the altar and not in the grave, people say? Well, first of all, their bodies aren't there. It's the souls of those who have been slain, which again kind of seems to be more along the lines of what I've been saying, that our soul, our, our consciousness is with God. But um, the altar is important here, that they are at the altar, the altar of incense. What happens at the altar of incense? That is a picture of prayer and the prayers that are ascending into heaven. Revelation chapter 8, just a couple chapters later here, in verse 4, it says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, and he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So another possibility, because of Revelation 8 telling us this, is it's the prayers or the voices of the saints that are at the altar in Revelation chapter 6. Okay, their voices are crying out. Okay, it's their prayers going up from the altar. So that's one way to look at it, or again, their consciousness, their voices are still with the Lord. Uh, we can Again, picking up here Revelation 6.10, what we've just talked about, crying out with a loud voice from Genesis 4.8, making another perfect comparison here. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me, from the ground. So a perfect comparison to what we see there in Revelation chapter 6 with these souls at the altar. Okay, these people are dead. Their bodies are in the grave just as Abel was dead. But the voice, his lifeblood, was crying out to God just like we see here in Revelation chapter 6. Going back to Enoch, Chapter 22, verse 5, it says, And I saw the spirits of the sons of men who were dead, and their voices reached to heaven while they were accusing. Then I inquired of Raphael, an angel who was with me, and said, Whose spirit is that? The voice of which reaches to heaven and accuses. He answered, saying, This is the spirit of Abel, who was slain by Cain his brother, and who will accuse that brother until his seed be destroyed from the face of the earth, until his seed perish from the seed of the human race. Keep in mind, Cain is a picture of the devil, uh, as many are throughout Scripture. And what he's saying is, is that this spirit of Abel that's crying out is going to accuse his brother. Just like we saw in Revelation 6, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That's what the spirit of Abel does at the altar, prayers, voice, 
going up to God. And so the voice is before God on his throne, which again could mean our consciousness could be there at the throne. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, we are going to uh, see here, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witnesses, or witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So this verse, to kind of close out, is giving us a spiritual reality that when the righteous are killed, their voices go up before God, just like we see there in Revelation 6, that there are the souls of those who have been slain, their voices crying out before God. 